Psalm 127 will be in the first two verses. And uh, this is kind of a, a precursor to the new series that David is going to kick off um, next week uh, with the building campaign and things coming up. Uh, it's a high time in the church. And um, he's going to be leading us through a series on um, just the mission and vision of the church and how it relates to this, this new building. Um, but I thought it'd be good for us, before we even get to, to that, to, to dwell a little bit over these two verses in Psalm uh, 127, um, and really uh, let this be the, the, uh, the foundation, or let it be the, uh, the disposition that we have moving forward with this new season. So we are in Psalm 127, again, the first two verses, but before we hear from God's word, um, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Lord, we ask now simply that you would do uh, what my mere words cannot, and that, that is, Lord, that you would write these words on the tablets of our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 127, verses 1 through 2, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Well, may God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. So there's a video that was going around, say, a few years ago, and um, quickly turned into an irresponsible meme. Uh, but it's of an older lady, an older black lady. Her name is Barbara. And uh, there's something that she said, and you'll see why it quickly turned into, into a meme. So, like, there's this video, and she's got, like, a turquoise dress on, and she's sitting there, I think it's in, the, like, a park. And she's an older lady, so she's got her glasses, and she kind of looks down. She looks at the camera, and she takes them off. And she looks at the camera, and she says, I'm going to try my best. She says, one thing I realized. That if God don't do it, it just won't get done. <laughs> she, says, she says it a second time. If God don't do it, it just won't get done. And of course, people immediately begin using that uh, for all kinds of excuses as to why they would not do the things that they should be doing. Uh, for one example, uh, one example recently was student loans. Um, I saw the meme and it was like when they ask you how you going to pay back those student loans and it has her face with the glasses down. If God don't do it, <laughs> it just won't get done. Now, the lady is no theologian by any means, no theologian, but I do think she captivates here what Solomon says to us in this psalm pretty plainly. You see, Solomon recognized, I think, this tendency in us as fallen human beings to believe that our success and our achievements are ultimately the work of our own hands. And of course, we kind of give, we give lip service to God and we say, you know, of course, God must be the one to do it. But at the end of the day, I think the default setting of the sinful human heart is to believe that success is ultimately in our own hands. And so Solomon writes this wisdom psalm. It's a wisdom psalm in that it's, it's similar to the wisdom literature of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. He writes this so that the reader may see 
that all success in human endeavors are contingent upon the Lord, that is the covenant-keeping God of Israel, all human endeavors, all success in human endeavors are contingent upon his sovereign will. And if he does not bless our efforts, all our labor is done in vain. If he doesn't bless our efforts, all of our labor is done in vain. And Solomon says this applies to everything from the building of a house to the protection of a city and to the birth even of children. We didn't read it, but verses three through five speak of it. In everything, God is the decisive actor and we are dependent on him for any and all success. And I thought about this psalm's Uh, This psalm, especially in relationship to where we are as a church. Y'all, it's no secret. The Lord has tremendously blessed us as a church body. These past few years, God has really blessed us. And I don't say that with any kind of arrogance. God really has blessed us. By God's grace, we are doing quite well. Finances are great. Giving is up. Our membership is increasing. Most importantly, people have been coming to faith, being converted to to Christ, uh, hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and being converted by by the personal ministry of those in our own congregation. God has really blessed us. Not only that, but the elephant in the room is we're moving into a new building as well. We're moving into a new space, and with that, we have the opportunity to do even more so that the gospel may go forward continuously in this city. Those are all great and really good things. But with them comes the temptation to to pride, comes the temptation to arrogance for myself, for us, and I would even say to forget the very theology that we say we profess especially as good old Presbyterians, that God is in control and he rules and overrules all things. And so we need a reminder, I think, from this psalm that if the Lord does not prosper the work of our hands, all of our efforts are in vain. If the Lord does not prosper the work of our hands, all of our efforts are in vain. And so we're just going to dwell on these first two verses in Psalm 127 this morning and really think through the implications for where we are as a church, but not only for where we are as a church, but also for where you may be in your own life, where you may be in the life of your family. And so let's look here at verses one and two. These verses make it abundantly clear that the Lord must prosper the work of our hands. Now, we don't know much about the historical context of the psalm. But I do think the fact that Solomon originally wrote it adds to the force of the meaning of the text. And here's why I say that. Think about it. Solomon, or during Solomon's reign, this would have been the golden age, if you will, of Israel, or at least the first half of Solomon's reign. In fact, 1 Kings chapter 4, or chapters 4 through 10, characterize the early years of Solomon's reign as a time of relative peace and unprecedented wealth. God had done as he had promised. He had brought his people into the land. He had established the Davidic king. He had given the nation great success. Under Solomon, you have uh, the building of the first temple. 
You have him building a grand palace for himself. On top of that, you've got the nations flocking to him because of his great wealth and his great wisdom. God had truly given his people great success. And I think with that, as you'll see even in the history of Israel, came the temptation to to pride and to arrogance and to begin to rely on themselves and their own resources rather than trusting in Yahweh. So Solomon writes, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And given that Solomon was the one tasked with, with building the temple, aka the house of the Lord, the word house here may very well be in reference to the temple. Some commentators believe that it may refer to household in the sense of of family, building up the family lineage, and they'll look at verses three through five as support for that. I think it may be the former, especially given the fact that this psalm probably was used in post-exilic times as well, perhaps in the rebuilding of the temple. But regardless, I think the point is overwhelmingly clear. That, any, that if any endeavor of ours is to be in the least bit successful, in this case, the building of a house, God must will it. As simple as that. If any endeavor of ours is to be of any success, God must will it. Likewise, Solomon says, the watchmen, right? The watchmen. Who literally stay, they stay awake they take turns staying awake at night on top of the city walls. Those would have, those would have been those guys who kind of take turns to make sure that, that no enemy attacks the city at night or um, when they were off guard or whatever. Solomon says, they, even the watchmen could be as vigilant as they like. But if the Lord is not the one who's ultimately watching the city, he says, even that's Vanity. It's, it's meaningless. It, it will, in the end, amount to nothing. And what's interesting here is you read these, these first two verses, or maybe the, the first time you read these, these two verses, the tendency, and I will admit, I think I probably read this, uh, these two verses like this before, is that when you read it, you say, okay, that makes sense. It's a 50-50 chance, right? It's a, or it's a 50-50 kind of deal. Of course, we do our part. God does his part, we work together, boom, we get things done. That's what he means when he says, you know, if the Lord doesn't build the house, we labor in vain. Like that's, that's the way that we are tended, like we tend to read this text. But if you read the text in that way, you've actually missed the entire point of the text. Because the point is, this isn't a 50-50. The point is, the Lord's action is decisive. It's the deciding factor. So much so that the watchman can watch, the builder can build. But if the Lord does not act decisively, then it will amount to nothing. And so I know you're probably thinking, well, what in the world, what does this have to, like, how do we understand human responsibility, the freedom of the will, and God's absolute sovereignty? How do we coincide these two things? I don't have time to go into that this morning, but I will say, it's not that Solomon doesn't say human choices as such are meaningless. Rather, he says human choices only have meaning in as much as they themselves are grounded in God's absolute sovereign will 
and decree. And if you're like, man, that seems very complicated, join, join the club, it's, it's, it's complicated. But we believe it because it's biblical testimony. But I think the main application point from this is y'all, this should give us great humility. Great humility. Because it reminds us we are not the ultimate cause of any successes we may experience. The success we've experienced as a church is wholly owing to God's will and to God's grace. The success you may have experienced in your personal ministry is, is wholly owing to God's will and God's grace. The success you may have experienced in your business or your job or your career, it's wholly owing to God's will and God's grace. Any achievements you've had in education, any blessings you've experienced when it comes to your family, and in your whole life, it's all owing to God's will and God's grace. And so next to humility, right? This is also a reason for us to give all praise, all honor, and all glory to God, right? Because it's ultimately his doing. If it's ultimately and decisively his doing, then it means all glory, honor, and praise and thanksgiving are due to him and him alone. And yet that's not all Solomon says, right? So if the Lord must prosper the work of our hands... That also means any work that we may try to engage in without him, or to put it better, any efforts done without considering him, the one who's absolutely sovereign, they will be vain and they can only lead to anxiousness. You see what Solomon says in verse 2? Look, he says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. Eating the bread of anxious toil, he says, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Solomon, I think, speaks here of the vanity of a kind of workaholism. And you get the picture of a a people that's kind of working themselves around the clock. Literally, they rise up early and they go to bed late. The text says they they sit up late or they sit late in order to to produce goods for themselves, and the text says they're eating the bread of anxious toil. Some some versions say they eat the bread of painful labor. So you just kind of get the picture of these people working themselves, their fingers to the bone. They work so hard and they work so diligently to the point where it actually produces anxiety. And you stop and you, you ask yourself the question, what else could that kind of work or engaging in that kind of work apart from God or without considering God, what else could it produce? I mean, if you think your success or your failure, for that matter, is ultimately up to you, then it's all on your shoulders, it's all on your back, you, got, you have to get this thing done or it won't get done, what else could come of that than extreme worry? Because you think it's all up to you. And so Solomon says, working like that can only be to your detriment. It can only harm you. If the Lord does not bless your efforts, working yourself around the clock won't mean a thing. And it will only lead to anxiety, to worry, and to this frantic kind of living. Hence, right, our need to pray. 
Hence our need to pray. If efforts done without considering God can only lead to vanity and worry, then one of the most important things that we can do as a body of believers, one of the most important things we can do is to pray. And is that not even in one sense, or at least in part, what prayer is? It is an expression or it's an acknowledgement of our absolute dependence upon God. H.B. Charles Jr., he actually says it this way in a a phenomenal quote. He says, prayer is an expression of submission to God and dependence upon him. He says, for that matter, prayer is arguably the most objective measurement of our dependence upon God. He says, the things you pray about are the things you trust God to handle. And the things you neglect to pray about are the things you trust you can handle on your own. The things you pray about are the things you trust God to handle. And the things you neglect to pray about are the things you trust you can handle on your own. Y'all, we know there is absolutely nothing we can really handle on our own, which is why we need to go to God in prayer for every single thing that we do. For everything in our lives, we must go before the Lord in prayer. With this building campaign coming up, we have urgent need to pray. We need the Lord to be with us, to be watching over us, to be ruling and overruling all things for our good and for his glory. Because if we don't prayerfully seek him, all we will be is an overworked, overly anxious people who rise up early and who go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toll. And we may actually even rob ourselves of the experience, at least in part, I think, of this great gift of rest that's promised to us in this very text. Did you catch verse 2? You notice the phrase at the end of verse 2, it kind of almost seems like a non sequitur. But if the first half of verse 2 gives you a picture of an individual who doesn't rely wholly on Yahweh, who doesn't rely wholly on the Lord, and so they're led to this kind of anxious overworking for their sustenance and provision, if that's the first part, the last part of this verse kind of gives you the picture of one of God's people, i.e. God's beloved or the Lord's beloved, who has received this beautiful gift of rest. It's a beautiful gift of rest that that arises from a rock-solid trust in the Lord's provision and who he is, for he gives to his beloved sleep. You know, when Solomon was born, Scripture says that David and Bathsheba named him Beloved of the Lord, or the Lord's Beloved. And that was under the direction of Nathan the prophet, who himself was under the direction of God. And so some commentators have said this actually may be an illusion. He's saying he gives to his beloved sleep. Solomon, as as the king of Israel, as, as the Davidic king and the ruler, maybe this is in reference to him. And so thinking of that, I couldn't also but but help but think of, of great David's greater son, right? 
the Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who, who is the Father's very own beloved Son, right, in a unique sense. The one who's eternally begotten of the Father, who says, the Father from heaven says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And, and I can't help but think of how he, that is Jesus, epitomized in his life such rock-solid trust in the Father, such rock-solid trust that gave rise to rest. And I think of one example in the Gospels in particular. You remember, it's in Mark 4, Matthew 8, and I forget exactly where it is in Luke. But when Jesus and the disciples are on the boat and they're in the midst of a great windstorm and the disciples are all frantic, running around, worried and anxious, and they're looking for Jesus. And the text says, meanwhile, he was in the stern fast asleep and you look at that and they're you're just like this is a life-threatening storm the disciples probably seem to have a good reason to be doing what they're doing and yet he here he is laying in the stern sleep and you get this picture of our savior who had such rock-solid trust in his, in his father and the provision and the protection of his father, that even in the middle of what was a life-threatening situation, a life-threatening storm, he could sleep. And that's the picture that you, to me, that you have here at the end of verse 2. And the wonderful thing is, y'all, this... This promise of the gift of rest is now ours in Christ. It's now ours in Christ. He trusted the Father completely for us to earn for us not only the gift of righteousness, but also the gift of this kind of sweet rest. The rest that he had is promised to those of us who are in him by grace through faith. And as we, as, as believers, and specifically as members of Cola Prez, as we rely on the Lord in all things, as we know him as the one who alone saves us in the person of the Son, and as we know him as the one who alone must prosper the work of our hands, we can and we will experience such rest. And this rest, it's, it's not an idle rest to be sure, right? We, we will work hard. The builders will build, the builders will build, the, uh, the watchmen will watch. But we will do so not in anxiousness, not eating the bread of anxious toil. But we will do so from a position of rest. Knowing that it is God, as Paul says, who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And we will trust that when it's all said and done, we will only have done those good works which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you um, just for this sweet reminder that you must prosper the work of our hands. And so, Lord, we do. We commit it all to you. We commit the work of this body. We commit... Lord, whatever endeavors that we are engaged in in our own personal lives, Lord, we commit it all to you and we ask that you would bless it. But most importantly, Lord, we pray 
uh, that it would be to the honor and the glory of your name. We ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen.